Mūtasa Bhagavatu Rahatu Samma Sambhutasa Namūtasa Bhagavatu Rahatu Samma Sambhutasa Namūtasa Bhagavatu Rahatu Samma Sambhutasa Udang Dhammang Sankhang Masami So I'll uh, try to offer some teachings from the understanding of the Buddha. So some of the language is often a little bit strange. So I'll try to put it in ways which may be more useful, more handy. So, you know, as we really recognize a lot in in terms of your know, practice in your what you're working with is always what's coming into your conscious mind your consciousness thoughts feelings ideas about other people what you should be what could be what will be what won't be sight sounds basis the matrix you might say that we're in his consciousness, isn't it? You know, if you really just kind of step, you know, consider that consciousness. Consciousness is always some kind of sense base, an object, and something lights up. And functioning eye, functioning ear, sound, sight, something lights up. You know? becomes present, somehow becomes alive, it's consciousness. Consciousness is that which presents, makes things present. And consciousness is always, mm, it's always two or three things, that, you know, the, that which perceives, that which is perceived, and this kind of flash of cognition, yeah. So even in terms of the mind, you know, thought, various objects come through the mind, memory, impulse, it's perceived, it's recognised as a kind of flash, and then we act upon that. We either let it pass a lot of the time, we just let them pass, they bubble through. One or two of them actually seem to crystallise and become very meaningful. Some of them trigger off actions. Yeah. So this is kind of a multiplicity of things that come down to a, a single thing, which is action. Yeah. It sights, sounds, crystallizes into a particular, you know, something crystallizes into something meaningful, and then you act. Yeah. That's happening. Those little crystals are happening all the time you know you hear the bell go ah that means that bong action you see someone crystallizes into a friend or whatever action maybe the action is just a smile or acknowledgement or thought or a little tremble in the mind so anywhere where so this crystallization occurs into a meaning something resonates and there's what we call action 
which doesn't necessarily mean deliberate doing, it means there's some kind of reaction, you might say, or response. So when you look at action, it's, it's a very activation starts to occur around meanings. Mm-hmm. So out of this, and every time one of these activations occurs, you know, there's a thought, there's a feeling, an impulse, along comes with it the sense of, I'm thinking that, I should do that, I am doing this, it's happening to me. The I sense comes out of that, the sense of self comes out of that. Yeah? You get that? So it's not that I create action, action creates me. I don't know if you recognize that. Just kind of look at it. As you, when you meditate, you can actually contemplate, you slow things down, you can contemplate the process of something bubbling up, welling up a thought, and then it sort of catches and it suddenly becomes strong. And then the feeling of being caught by it, and then this kind of sense of self flustered or activated or agitated comes up, and then I start to do something about it. You know, maybe I just kind of relax and let it go. Or pick it up, or worry about it, or add another thought to it. You know, something, you know, the process continues. So we are the heirs of our action. We kind of, we come out of that field. But the beginning of it really is a whole strand of seemingly random processes, sights, sounds happening. Consciousness is the mother, the matrix catches them, catches a certain amount, brings it together into the womb, boom, crystallizes into something, and I come out. (laughs) Been through this many, many times, haven't we? Called birth. And the basis is consciousness is like actually a we that becomes or tries to become a me. That is, in consciousness, there's always a kind of subject, object, there's relationships, joy, love, hate, interest, confusion, distraction, relational things. And out of this kind of matrix comes a meaning and then a me. Consciousness is a we that trying to become a me, a me and an it. And you, you know, when you, so a me and an it, a me and a thought, a me and a you, a me and a place, a me and a this, a me and a that. Sometimes the it's are things we treasure, things we crave for things we fear, people we like, long for, miss, feel irritated by, disappointed by, me, it, me, it. And in that me, it, there's the struggle. How do I get it? How do I get rid of it? How do I change it? How do I make it more of it, less of it? There's the kind of, so around this me, it thing, there's always this kind of agitation. Mm-hmm. And there's also the rather 
more pleasant experience we have of we when actually the relationship rather than the different different me and it the relationship becomes important we feel well okay you, you me, me, right we can be together and there's a nice quality about that and that's that's the mother that's the basic form of consciousness is a we form but for the unawakened being or the being who hasn't you know fully realized and and transcended consciousness that we is always forming me and you him and her me and them me and it yeah, and there's a struggle and a disappointment around that. And also, of course, there's tremendous passions and pleasant feelings and unpleasant feelings. But it all keeps shifting and changing. Yeah, and with something in a still is that interest in finding the place where it's all kind of unified and together and nice and settled and stable and comfortable and happy and pleasant and so forth. But it doesn't quite happen that way, as you may have noticed. You've got to keep working on the relationship, adjusting, keeping the we sense in mind. You know, as you live with other people, this is something we all learn, isn't it? You know, it it doesn't just happen by itself. You've got to keep listening and learning and dropping and picking up and encouraging and forgiving and brightening and you know you can keep sort of some sense of in there and feeling it's worth it because the end of it is that there's the possibility to um, to learn something really what we start to learn from that basic matrix is it's kind of you know, we learn about our prejudices. We learn about our hungers. We learn about our resistances. We learn about our stubbornness. We learn a lot about the me sense and its roughness and its demandingness and its awkwardness and its fearfulness and its dithering and its trying to, you know, think, wow, there's a lot in this, you know. And surely one of the pleasant things about skillful relationship is that possibility, you know, through being with other people to begin to actually acknowledge, hey, this happens to me, this happens to you. You know, don't take these things like irritation and prejudice and bias and, you know, whatever. Personally, this is just, this is what happens. Uh, can we come back to the we sense and start to release that? You know, start to share that, start to understand that, start to come above that which is surely what a lot of skillful relationship is just about and in that you get more than just a a nice relationship you you learn about your rough edges and you learn about how you don't need to be those fears you don't need to be those demands you don't need to be those judgments they're just they're not worthy of you this is kind of Beautiful thing that can happen, isn't it? 
this may sound not much like Buddhism, but um, basic encouragement of the Buddha always was Kalyanamita, you know, sense of Sangha itself literally means that which comes together. You know, it's a kind of sense of a unity, a relational unity. Um, that's that's whose aim is the highest. You know, how do we live in peace and harmony? And in fact, how do we use this to so understand our um, meannesses in a compassionate and graceful way and penetrative way that we actually, through seeing them, can pass through that, can come through that, can be both less ourselves and also far greater than any of ourselves could be. Possibility for that blossoming. And, uh, you know, there's a lovely thing in the suttas where the Buddha find comes across these group of enlightened monks living together and they say, you know, surely we just have, we have separate bodies, we only have one mind. You know, we live, to, we are living this quality of sharing and harmony and empathy and, and it's just a very humble, you might say, very down-to-earth statement of what enlightenment's about. You know, nothing too fancy and yet you can really feel, oh, that would be nice, wouldn't it? You know, and of course, the one of the, I think one of the pressures for most of us is that the ground or the basic teachings of early Buddhism were not monastic as such. You know, they were people on the road. So you didn't have the, the incredible um, sense of, you know, there you are, 30 of you, 20 of you day in, day out, you know, <laughs> which really pushes your nose against the, against this issue, <laughs> sometimes too much for people to bear, <laughs> gets too complicated, the amount of relational things that can happen just gets too intense, because <laughs> it's a big, there's a big, a lot in there. Hmm. And, you know, certainly it's messy, but it's also very, uh, if these things can be passed through, there's a enormous resource. I think most of us have actually have a lot of difficulty in relationship. Yeah. There's a lot of judgment, a lot of, cons- a lot of assessment, a lot of comparisons, a lot of biases, a lot of uncertainties, a lot of this kind of things going on. You know, when you get multicultural mixes, it gets quite intense. So, tendency just to sort of shut off. You know, just me on my own. You know? That doesn't do it either. (laughs) Because then that particular impression has its effects. You know, withdrawal has its effects in the relational experience. You know, it can be read as not interested, don't care, so forth. So it doesn't actually produce harmony either. And okay, you know, 
remembering what we're starting to talk about was consciousness. So we're on our own. You know, that's also part of it. I mean, I think nobody would really in their right minds hopefully expect people to be kind of welded to each other day in, day out. So you need the distance, you need the space, you need the separateness, and that's... But then you actually look at the matrix again, internally. You know, there's that forming of a me. And how does it happen? comes out of this process of something that's originally you know, a kind of a, a rather random arising of many, many things, you know, thoughts, feelings, perceptions, memories, and then often what we don't see immediately, a kind of undercurrents, like resistances to certain thoughts, um, numbing out over certain feelings, absorption into certain thoughts, fascination with some feelings, you know, liking to play with certain impressions, not wanting to touch other impressions, feeling guilty about certain moves. You get all kinds of undercurrents and cross-referencing going on. And then you think something, and you say, right, you try and sort it out. <laughs> you know? So then another one comes in. It's like, as I say, you've got a bag of, big bag full of puppies that are, fighting with each other, so you throw another puppy in to sort the other ones out. Of course you get even more puppies running around. You get the kind of control puppy trying to shut the other puppies up. (laughs) Sometimes it can be pretty, do it fairly, you know, to a certain degree. But then this kind of intense effort that one needs makes the whole process so counterproductive. You know, you just want to let let the puppies ramble around, doesn't matter. Which is often what people kind of eventually come back to, just, you know, let it blow. And um, hopefully they'll just run out of energy after a while. (laughs) They do certainly calm down, you get a sense of things just rising and moving and rising and moving, you know. There's a certain peacefulness about that. And you have two features of mind, really, that work. One is mind as an organ, mano, which sees particular discrete objects. This is this, this is that, this is the other. Which is very good for a sense of focus, but it's very much a me-it relationship. I'm seeing that thing, that thought come, that thought goes, that feeling, that sense, you know. Relationally very simplistic. Kind of helps in a way. But then you, when you come into mind as base, the base of the mind or heart, chitta, then you're really actually in the pond with it. You know, you're just experiencing the more like the resonance and the whole field of mind, which is, uh, you know, more emotive, effective, responsive. And in, when we contemplate chitta, then we're really coming into the matrix of consciousness. You know, how consciousness is about. Because within that quality, the resonant, effective, impulsive, moody, where the objects are not necessarily even always that clear, you get general broad senses of feeling, 
rocky, feeling cool, feeling blissful, feeling wobbly, feeling tight, you know, you get general perceptual things. And, uh, you know, you begin to kind of you know, get a sense of how do we find unity in all this? How do we get a sense of managing all this? Sometimes it's just relaxing and resting rather than even looking at any particular objects. Just you create environments, environment of kindness, yeah? which isn't particularly looking for answers or knowledge, but just uh, peace, harmony. And actually this is, um, you know, where the things don't really crystallize too much. This actually is a teaching that the Buddha gave on called emptiness, lesser discourse on emptiness. He's saying you actually start to um, contemplate the, the mind and look at the overall quality of that and begin to lessen your attention to the details. So instead of seeing every speck on the floor, you just see the floor. And you don't fuss with the particular details. Instead of seeing every particular feature of somebody's shirt, you just see a body. You don't fuss with the details. You know? And you can widen that. Instead of seeing particular individuals, you see a room full of people. You know, you actually focus on that feature, the room has people in it. You can widen it further, say the room has space in it. So you keep widening it. As you widen it, you don't exactly, you don't fight with the details or try and cut out the details, you just widen it till the crystallization doesn't occur around the details, it occurs around the whole field. You understand? So what you come up with as the final statement is space or yeah, you know, space, for example, or people. You know. So you get that rather than a particular feature. So the all the stuff you can get going around details and comparisons and contrasts and things like that begins to not get activated because you're you're widening to a to a larger meaning, which doesn't carry those kind of things. Yeah. You know, you, you sit in a room, people, you can have particular issues with this person or her mode of dress or here's, a, here's this, that and the other. But you can widen it to, you know, beings living out their karma. Suddenly you don't have so much stuff to get traction on. You know? So you just, what's called widening or adjusting the perception. Because the crystallization the crystal process, the crystallization process of meaning is called perception. It means one particular feature is picked up and established as this is it. You know, you might see some of the maleness of a man. You might say, oh, that's a bloke. You know, rather than that's Jim or Harry or whatever. You, know, you, see that, you see that particular thing, you pick that up and that becomes your, the defining feature that you get activated by. Or a woman or a friend, or whatever. Or a role, you know, that's the boss, or that's this, that, and the other. So that defining feature becomes the thing you activate. That's called perception. And, um, you know, that's something you work with. 
Because as you begin to recognize, you begin to actually study it, particularly around people who are the most perceptually potent forms for us, you know, you begin to see how you can actually trap people in particular perceptions, you know, such as the cook, you know, for example. She is the cook. The cook. So she becomes a function. And you start to, to leave out the other aspects of, you know, she's not happy or she's stressed or something like that, you know, of this example. People of function. People according to race, ethnic, ethnicity. Yeah, people according to um, gender. So within these you carry certain biases, which means you only see one feature. That feature becomes the dominant thing, and that very much affects how you act, think, perceive, act. And the we sense, the sense of, you know, just like me, just like me, you know, feels pain, just like me, gets confused, just like me, wants happiness, just like me, has karma, that starts to disappear, and it becomes an it. And then the problems start. And this is going on all the time. That's perception. Normal feature of the mind. Normal feature of the mind. Something to be really conscious of. So that you don't mistake perception for reality. You know, you consider a person. Sometimes I do this with the people I live with. I consider people I live with Consider them as old. What will she be like in 15, 20 years? As happy, as sick, as, you know, asleep, as worried, as getting what they need, as not getting what they need. You know, you sort of sort of run these things through. And be, actually, the more and more you know of the person, the less and less you define the person. And that's kind of, in a way, the stronger, the wider your relationship gets, the less and less you know who this person is. Because <laughs> you don't have a particular thing. You know? And yet, you're not denying existence. You're not rubbing them out. You know? And there's something very lovely about that, because the more, the wider you can allow these different forms and perceptions to be there, you don't actually rest in any of them. There's a huge sense of, of um, freedom in that. You know? And at the same time, it's a freedom that doesn't dismiss. Or, you know? So that's how you kind of work with perception. As I work with perception. I don't always do it, but when I do, I feel better than when I don't. It's my basic rule of Buddhism. <laughs> when I don't do it, I get into trouble. <laughs> and when it's done to me, I can feel it. Yeah. It's been, you know, when I'm seen as a certain thing and held there for too long, I'm, I, I can feel it. I don't like it at all. The compassion goes, the Fluency goes, the relational sense goes. You take that kind of way of working with perceptions and bring it into your own more interior realm, 
as if they're really the two aren't that separate, are they? Mm-hmm. And uh, you can see certain things. How there's always the perception acts as the potential for for a kind of solidity. This is this. Got it. This is that. Chuck it away. You know, we get certain immediate potentials for action, for holding on or for getting rid of. And you recognize that what those, when those actions start to trigger off these undercurrents of greed, attachment, aversion, proliferation, you're in trouble. Because within perception, this carries this seed called the seed of becoming, which means it promises the possibility of some solid position, some solid ground. And from our meditation, that kind of hunger to become something informs the meditation to find the experience, the experience. You know, what do you want to call it? The ground of being, the deathless, nibbana, enlightenment, your true self, your true nature, your ultimate essence. Find the, the thing, get to the thing. Get that place where things suddenly become boom, you know, you're there and you feel good. You know? And that's, that's the energy. And so there's a scanning around. Yeah, and there's a searching and a, a changing and a, we do all kinds of numbers to find that and uh, behind that becoming comes a sense of self which isn't necessarily gross sometimes we call it who you really are or your self beyond the self or the supreme state of being or the, but really it's just another way of saying a unified subjective sense And the uh, the Buddha teachings actually don't do that. They don't take you there. They don't really, you know, they take you into unified states. And in the teachings on emptiness, the Buddha says, yeah, you know, you can get really good at this. You can get to unified states that you wouldn't believe, you know. They're so subtle. They're out there, nothingness, and neither perception or non-perception. You can get into some spaces where nobody's going to bother you, you know. (laughs) And I've been there, and I can do this, you know. These kind of jhanic states, samadhi states. Very useful in that they do just... um, eliminate a lot of the undercurrents till it becomes quite simple, very simple, radically simple. And he said, this is the best thing you could become. If you want to become something, do this. This is going to get you the best place you could ever be. But if you want to actually get out of the business, you can drop this. And that's what the teachings on emptiness are about. Recognizing that in not to really destroy the state, but to start to look at the, the 
always this understanding of the undercurrent, which is delight. Delight in perception. Mm. Delight's a strong word, but that sense of got it, have it, am there. And we can see that as a constant undercurrent in establishing perception, in establishing meaning, establishing ground, feeling of got it, am it, you know, was sort of confused and now got it, have it. And he's saying, this is not bad. This can take you to the to the best places you can be as a as a conventional being. But if you you know, but there's something relentless about the Buddha. He's saying, well, just try to understand within that the very very nature of perception. What does perception do? Any perception, it picks up something, defines a dominant tray crystallizes that as this is this and when you consider how perceptions arise for all of us we say no that's just that's just a take on it you know you can can see someone he's she's french she's 50 years old she's an artist she's but she's also all none of that those are all true and yet that's not who she is. No. Then you can pick on one of them and say that's who she is. And it's true and yet it's also not true. The very act of perception always condenses one dom- into one dominant thing and then around that you start acting. The first thing you start doing is conceiving, construing, identifying, proliferating, judging, assessing, and we do it to ourselves. Something that really wants to find out who I am. And then, you know, am I this, am I that, should I, could I, could I, assessment goes on. That is, that is the fundamental action of Sankara, called the, the programs of consciousness. Find out who I am, find out what is here, find out what it is. And the Buddha is saying, well, you know, you don't actually have to destroy, you know, you can't destroy that, but you can begin to understand it. And lesson, as you understand how finally restless it all is, how finally unsatisfactory it all is, something you starts to grow tired of it, tired of doing it, tired of hanging on, tired of trying to hold it together. Good nipita means you just get weary of just carry on. (laughs) And then the perception can the act of perception, which we don't recognise as an act because it's so instinctive, it's a reflex, can loses its charge because we're not you realize whatever you call it isn't true, it isn't going to get you to a good place, it isn't going to be lasting. You, the flavor of the delight fades, wanes. You know? And I guess for most of us, it's just this business 
of knowing it in your head or beginning to get a glimpse of it in your head and trying to get your stubborn heart to get it <laughs> you know as you buy into another thing you know oh well here we go here he goes wait for the crash you know <laughs> one of the least uh, popular teachings of the Buddha they weren't all winners by any means A lot of yes, the Buddha's teachings, or certainly, even now, if you're looking at Kubernetes, what's that? Yeah. So the, eventually, one of the, one where it's actually said, after the Buddha finishes his talk, people didn't like this. This is actually the first, first discourse in the Middle Link saying. So the Buddha gives this discourse, and the monks who listened to it were not pleased. They didn't like it at all. No funny stories, no jokes, no anecdotes. No happy endings. <laughs> and it was really about perception. Yeah. So the two things that occur, the act of perception, then out of perception comes the construing. Yeah. So you start to get something in your meditation. Wow, this is it. And then you construe, well, I'm in this. Or oh, it's happening to me. Or my true nature is in this. Or my essence of being arises out of this, or my essence of being disappears into it. And you start, you know, and you say, yeah, you haven't really under, this is what it does, this is, the, this is the conjurer's trick, it keeps you busy. You know, it keeps you busy and uh, interested. You know, you get hypnotized by this stuff. And you say, well, you know, for someone who's training, try to see it directly as it is. As perception, as these crystals of meaning, you know? and then for the adept, as someone who doesn't do that anymore, they directly experience the multiplicity of things. They no longer search for unity. They allow the multiplicities, you know, because they're not being held into trying to make something or create something or get away from something or have something, the multiplicity starts to deconstruct because there's no juice in them, no charge in them. It's like a line of suitors, a line of courtiers standing at the gate or waving saying, me, 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 which one will you have? You know, which one will you have? Which one will you have? You know, today, which one will you have? And first thing, I'll have that one. You try that one. He didn't work. Then I'll try that one. You know, and then I'll try the three of you. And eventually, you realise none of them. So they start to just kind of, you know, they start to fade because they've got they don't delight you. You're not um, interested in them. You're not averse to them. You don't take a stand upon them. You don't try to be someone apart from them. You don't do all this, any of this jiggery stuff of try, trying to define yourself as apart from them or in them or away from them or with this one or that one. You think. The environment of the mind becomes dispassionate towards this. And the Tathagata is someone who does not 
conceive does not proliferate because he understands delight is the source of suffering this didn't go down very well at all <laughs> so so often on occasions they would have said well okay you delight in the Dhamma do that you know, delight in delight in concentration delight in noble company you know because that that will get you to the place where you can maybe see it more clearly. Yeah. And the place we see it more clearly is in various ways, is what I mean by the we consciousness. It means there's a sense in which um, there's rapture, there's embracing, there's loving, there's collectedness. There's no picking and fighting and snabbing and biases and prejudices and, you know, it's embracing. And within that, we begin to see what we embrace is actually, what is it? You know, it's like when you see the wholeness of what your mind can do, you know, what do you want to buy into, any of it? Goodbye to any of it. Yeah. When you see that, you know, you know because the more thoroughly you know the mind, in a way, the less you make of it. Because it's, it's like that, isn't it? It's like the more thoroughly you know the variations, the comings, the goings, the ups and downs, the joys, the sorrows, the niggardliness, the happiness of another person, unless you really make them into something definite. And that's actually good, isn't it? I mean, that's got a lot more space in it, and yet you're not cutting them out. Simply by really, really knowing and opening your mind to all of it is, without cutting any of it out, you escape from it because it doesn't have doesn't carry the seeds that attract you you escape from the mind so the Buddha said this is possible as you do your work as you do your, as you go through your processes, you know, there comes a time, or comes changes, there come things where you, you get the sense of, there's enough of this. Mm. And there's descent on the, to the, Emptiness to the unconditioned is possible. But if there hadn't been that opening to the conditioned, to the formed, to the become, an opening that is 
courageous, an opening that is intent on purity, intent on loving kindness, intent on clarity, intent on honesty. There had been an opening to the conditioned, then the descent to the unconditioned is not possible. So in a way this gives us a very, I feel, the encouragement in our daily lives. And the recognition that, you know, it's the very humble level of what I infer, how I see you, how you see me, how we are with each other. There's a possibility to learn a lot, perhaps a lot more than we think, about emptiness. Anyone? Anyway.